0: The final words of Henry Morgan Dempsey, and perhaps the coolest last words ever uttered, were, There's a place worse than hell. I'll be waiting there for you. This week on A Scary Home Companion, we take a radically different kind of look at the serial killer called Barbed Wire Henry. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music and mayhem, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales and terrible truths. This is A Scary Home
1: Companion.
0: Ed Gein, Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy, Zodiac, Ted Bundy. These are but a handful of truly evil men who have become cultural icons of a sort. And I don't use that term to glorify nor glamorize these heinous men, only to point out that in every case, their stories and their personas have been co-opted by pop culture and sort of recycled into the zeitgeist. Henry Morgan Dempsey is one of these few heinous men. As a kid, Henry completed the so-called golden triangle of burgeoning psychopathic behavior. Bedwetting, fire starting, animal cruelty. He checked off all the major boxes. But of course, back then, no one was really looking for these kind of warning signs. His temperament naturally led him towards a job in law enforcement. He got a job as a prison guard not soon after flunking out of college. This was just a different kind of college. This was much more than a job to Henry. By working in the prison, he was picking up tips and tricks from every type of criminal known to the great state of Pennsylvania. In particular, he became acquainted with a man named Ira Dunwich. Now, Ira Dunwich should be the focus of an entire episode unto himself. He was a notorious, self-styled blood cult leader in the late 50s. He was known mostly for writing a book about this race of trans-dimensional demons that he worshipped. There are no written records detailing any official involvement or interaction between Henry and this cult leader, but there is one very curious coincidence. About two weeks after Ira Dunwich was hanged by the neck until dead, Henry quit his job. He cited in inheritance from some long-lost relative no one had ever heard of before. As it came to pass, Henry would not step foot back inside of that prison until he was shackled. Henry went off the grid for a while. When he came back, about 18 months later, the barbed wire Henry killings began. The first victim was a woman found in her car, dead as a result of strangulation and blood loss, because she had been strangled to death with a barbed wire noose. This would become one of Henry's signatures over his reign of terror. The next day, before the Philadelphia Inquirer could even run their story about the murder, they received a letter from the killer. It was three pages long, handwritten, blocked text, and signed barbed wire Henry. At first, this was dismissed as another Zodiac killer copycat, but three more victims in three months, no one was dismissing Henry anymore. He sent a different letter to a different media outlet after each murder. They were always long, rambling, delusional, obsessed with this race of disfigured monsters that lived on the edge of hell. It really takes a little studying of all the letters collectively before they start to fall into place. They're just so disjointed and out of sequence. But to me, having read them all, the message is perfectly clear. Henry's goal was he was trying to achieve immortality by becoming one of these monsters. If he was going to go to hell anyway, he might as well plan ahead and be a supervisor, right? To do that, it took a lot of blood spilled Not just his victims, also his own. The months rolled on. The bodies kept stacking up. Fifteen people altogether. Men and women, black and white, connected only by the barbed wire noose. Finally, the police caught him. Not so much through sharp police work, unfortunately, as just increasingly brazen and foolish attacks by Henry. It's like... time was running out, he was acting like he was losing patience, he was getting very sloppy, he was acting in haste. He'd even taken to wrapping up his face, his upper chest, and his arms in the same barbed wire loops that he used in previous murders. So when the police did catch him, he had evidence from every single murder on his person. With that kind of evidence, the trial was very brief. Naturally, the defense used an insanity plea, and, interesting, as evidence, they presented a, a brain scan which revealed a very major tumor in Henry's brain. The prosecution, of course, wanted to use their own doctor, their own expert witness, and that doctor's scan revealed no such tumor. Henry's brain was in fine health. Henry was very quickly convicted and sentenced to death. He returned to his old prison, to the same death row he used to guard, and to the very same cell Ira Dunwich used to occupy. And there he stayed until he met his own end. Originally, he was slated for the electric chair, but he put up a legal battle so that they had to execute him by hanging. And so it was. The man with the barbed wire noose ended up at the end of a rope of his own. During the autopsy everything changed the narrative of who barbed wire henry was and what he was all about changed with a flourish so dramatic and horrific that most people still don't believe that it's true to this very day but i do Carry Home Companion is sponsored by Bob War's Barbed Wire Emporium. No one knows Barbed Wire like Bob War. Located on Eastbound Route 301. There are two very important books that sort of define the entire Barbed Wire Henry case. The first was a handwritten journal found in Henry's personal effects when the police searched his home. This book later became evidence against him at trial. The second book was released about a year after Henry's death. It was written by the doctor who performed the autopsy on Henry. I'd like to present an excerpt from the memoirs of Dr. Stephen J. Cochran, Published 1993 by Fence Post
1: Publishing. Chapter 12. Concerning the Autopsy of Henry Morgan Dempsey. I will admit to a certain degree of morbid curiosity in this particular case. I was no stranger to autopsies, of course. Yet I never relished in the work. But this this was a a once-in-a-career opportunity. From a cultural perspective, this man, Henry, was a diabolical villain of mythic proportions. From a scientific and medical perspective, here was a man possessed of multiple homicidal psychoses. What secrets might his brain yield to me? I found his skull to be of unusual thickness, but the brain inside seemed unremarkable at first glance. It looked in all ways healthy and free of disease or malformation, disproving the notion that brain damage had somehow caused his homicidal delusions. But then we saw the tumor. It was black and green, as big around and as long as my thumb. It looked like no cancer nor malignant mass I had ever seen before or since. I went in with my scalpel, to take the entire specimen. And that's when it moved. I dropped my scalpel. I would have thought myself delusional had my assistant not gasped for breath and crossed himself at the same time, for he had seen it too. This damned thing, this tumor, had actually moved as if it was trying to wriggle out of the brain matter. If it wasn't a tumor, what was it?
0: That book was published in 1993, but it was actually written in 1979, a year after Henry died, and a year before Cochrane went off the grid himself. In truth, the memoirs were only published as a sort of a publicity stunt. It was a geek show attraction by a publisher that had heavily dabbled in fanfic about serial killers for years. This was never a scholarly book, and Cochrane was never welcomed in those circles, especially after his obviously- ridiculous assertions that he put forth in the book, none of which makes it any more or less true, I suppose, according to Cochran, that memoir ended up becoming the all-time best-selling title from Fence Post Publishing. In 2003, they released an anniversary edition, which came with annotations and some updated information. Originally, the plan was that there was going to be a new chapter written just for this edition by Dr. Cochran himself, According to the book's editor, the copy of this chapter they received from the author was absolutely unusable. Apparently, this new chapter rambled on for 60 pages. Cochran made assertions about a secret arm of the government and some pretty wild stories about an army of serial killers working for the devil. Perhaps most intriguing of all, this chapter was entirely handwritten in plain block letters, very similar to those from the old barbed wire Henry letters. Dr. Cochran has been neither seen nor heard from since then, and that's been about 15 years ago. It was only recently, very recently, that we learned what happened to him. With the next part of this story is our correspondent in the field, Mary Ann Simpson, who has a Very special guest.
2: As I was researching a story for this episode, the legacy of Barbed Wire Henry, the strangest thing happened. Word of my inquiry got around the message board in the serial killer superfan community, and subsequently, my guest tonight reached out and contacted me. There were several hoops to jump through and a fairly impressive vetting system. My guest has demanded absolute privacy in order to tell her story, and she needed to make sure I was legit. Her birth name is Dora Cochrane, but she has changed her name several times. She is the daughter of the late Dr. Stephen Cochrane, and she has one incredible story to tell. The following interview was recorded in an undisclosed location and has not been altered in any way. I very much appreciate you letting me record you. Can you tell my listeners what it is that you possess and how you came to possess it? What? You remember, right? Let's take it from the top. Uh, Dora, I am trying to give my listeners the complete story. They don't know what you have, so we have to tell them. Oh. Oh. Okay. Dora... Can you tell my listeners what it is that you possess and how you came to possess it?
3: Sure. Um, I was... Okay. This is hard. We all knew Dad was off after he lost his job. The thing with his book, all of that. Pure Looney Tunes. Except that it wasn't. He was on his deathbed and... He took both my hands into his. That's how big his hands were. One of his fit around both of mine. That's when he told me about Henry.
2: You are referring to barbed wire Henry, the notorious serial killer. Your father performed his autopsy? He wrote about it in his book. People thought he was crazy. So did Mom, and that's why she
3: left him. But he wasn't. He gave me the combination and had me go into the basement, and there was a door and a hidden safe inside it, lined with lead. I opened it, and inside there was nothing
2: but the jar. So, inside of this lead-lined safe, there was a jar. What was inside the jar? Uh, Dora, what was inside the jar? It... It was the
3: tumor he found in Henry's head. It had been in that jar, in that safe, for 20 years. It was still crawling around. When I opened the safe, it crawled up to the side of the jar facing me. It sensed me.
2: And did you bring it with you to the studio today?
3: Of course I didn't. Of course I didn't. Did you not listen to me on the phone? You know I can't ever take it out of the safe. It's a lead safe. It has to stay in there so it can't reach out to the others.
2: What makes you so sure there are others?
3: Didn't I tell you? I took it out of the safe once. Just once. It wasn't an hour later that the man knocked on my door.
2: What man?
3: I don't know. I've never seen him before. But when I looked in his eyes, I saw something behind them had something crawling around in his brain.
2: And what did the man say to you?
3: That he needed to use my phone. I, I didn't believe it for one second. I showed him my gun, told him I would use it. He left, but I could tell he was laughing at me. I moved the next day.
2: Hmm, I understand. Dora, I really need to see it. If we want people to believe your story and your father's story, I need to believe your story. You do believe me, don't you? Of course I do. But it would help if I could see the jar and see what's in it. He said no one would believe me, that that the only people who would
3: believe me were them. He was wrong, though. There are other people, government people... They know about it. They know where it comes from. You read Daddy's book. Yes, I did. Then you know what's in the jar. It's green and black, powdered emeralds and oil. It sings, you know. Yes, you mentioned that. It sings, and then there are pictures that flash inside your head. Before I left to come here, it sang to me. Showed me pictures of you. Can you take me there? Show me? No, 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 no. Um, sorry. Can't do that. If you know where it is, you can tell them.
2: I would never tell anyone. I I just would very much like to see it.
3: I know you wouldn't tell anyone. I, I can tell. Not like you are now. But they would find you, the others... They would find you and put one of those things in your head, and then you couldn't help yourself. You would lead them right to it.
2: Uh, Other than you and your father, no one has ever been able to study this up close. Sure, they
3: have. Um, The government people. I met a woman who worked for the DRO once. She knew things. She knew things, right? She told me there's a priest who has a collection of jars just like mine.
2: Uh, The DRO?
3: It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole other thing. Look it up. You'll find people who want to talk to you.
2: What, in your opinion, is this thing?
3: It, it swims in your blood and makes a nest in your brain, so it can tell you what to do. It whispers, and it sings. I think that's why Daddy killed himself, to make the singing stop. What actually is it? It's... it's the devil. A little piece of the devil. And he wants it back.
0: two very important books that define the Barbed Wire Henry case. We've discussed the memoirs of Dr. Cochran, which, if I am being completely candid here, I absolutely accept and fully believe as the gospel truth and canon of the situation. I do believe that the doctor pulled a living tumor from that serial killer's head, and I do believe it has something to do with his crimes. The second book just as important, was never published. It's only ever been read by a handful of people, most of whom are dead or missing. It's the book Ira Dunwich wrote and based his blood cult on, his Bible of those demons that he worshipped. He wrote it out by hand, illustrated it with cheap blue ballpoint pen ink. This book is called The Ghastly Ones. After his trial, it was put in the evidence locker with everything else about Ira Dunwich. And there it stayed. Until it was found with the personal effects of Henry when the police searched his home 20-something years later. It was used in trial, put into the evidence locker with everything else about barbed wire Henry. And there it stayed. Until... It was found again in the personal effects of Martin Rose, the serial mutilator that was called the Hand Collector, almost 30 years later. Three men, three killers, spanning generations, all connected by this same book, all connected by this foul and malignant religion that they all proselytized, a religion of blood and human suffering at the altar of these ghastly ones. What if the thing inside Henry's head was a part
1: of that religion? Hey,
0: thanks for listening to this episode of A Scary Home Companion. Today's episode was written and directed by Nathaniel Hensley and produced and edited by myself, Carl Offenberg. The music featured today was from the groups Lobo Loco, Lemon Yellow Haze, and The Riptides. If you'd like your music or story featured, shoot us an email at ascaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. Our opening theme music was written and recorded for us by the very talented Chelsea Oxendine. Check out more of Chelsea's music at YouTube at her channel Chalsen. That's C-H-A-L-S-E-N. Our interviewer Marianne Simpson was played, as always, by the wonderful Jamie Hensley. And Dora Cochran was played by Sarah Hansen. Hey, thanks again for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends.